Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. Awesome. So uh, again, a big welcome if you're a guest with us this morning. I know obviously we had the dedication this morning, so we've got some friends and family of Hayden's and Alicia's here as well. But if you are a guest uh, with us, it's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've been doing a series, once it pops up on the screen, uh, on what is God like? We've been talking about what is God like? And uh, the reason we're doing this is because uh, fundamentally we believe that how we perceive God, how we view God, is super important. So there's this guy called A.W. Tozer. He's a Christian theologian, a Christian philosopher, and he's written a ton of books. He wrote a great book called Knowledge of the Holy. And in it, he makes a statement that, you know, the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God. He, He kind of postulates that, that every decision we make, every action we take, the way that we think, you know, every part of our life is in some way, shape, or form impacted or influenced by how we, at a deep, deep level, view God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not someone that believes in God, then that's okay. What that means is that at a deep, deep level, the thought that you have about God is that He's not real. And you can have that thought if you want to have that thought, but I'll tell you what, that thought is impacting your values, it's impacting your morals, it's impacting your decisions, it's impacting every area of your life, just the thought that God's not real. In the same way that I have, deep down, uh, a conviction that God is real. And so that impacts every area of my life. But for us as Christians, the decision isn't, is God real or is God not real? It's, what is God like? And if I think that God is a big, fat meanie, then I will live my life very differently to someone that thinks that God is this beautiful, loving God. If I think that God is kind, then I live my life very differently to someone who thinks that God is unkind. If I think that if I make a mistake that God reaches down and picks me up and says, bro, it's okay, I've never given up on you, then I'll live my life very differently to somebody who thinks if I make a mistake, I'm going to get hit with a stick. And so A.W. Tozer says, hey, what you think about God is super, super important. So... I had this idea, I thought, hey, let's do a series on the characteristics of God. And every week we'll look at a different characteristic of God. And so I wrote out a list of six to eight different characteristics, and then God screwed it up and threw it away. And he said, no, I don't want you to talk about a lot of that stuff. And so what I'm doing at the moment is every week, you know, I kind of come to God at the start of the week, and I say, all right, well, what's the characteristic that you want the church to be talking about this this week? And so the first one, Dan opened it up, and he talked about the fact that God is holy. You need to click back on that for me, Tibor, if you can. God is holy. There we go. Uh, And so holy in a biblical context means that God is set apart, right? He's sacred. Uh, And another definition is that he's morally blameless. He's physically pure. And so the first thing that we learned about God is that he is set apart. He's sacred. And what does this mean for us? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter is quoting a verse in Leviticus. He says, it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so our revelation and our understanding of the fact that God is a holy God directly uh, empowers us to live a holy lifestyle. In the same way that God is morally blameless and physically pure and ceremonially consecrated is another definition. The Bible says, all right, once you understand that about God, now you can use that to help you live the kind of life that God is calling you to live. So it's super important that we understand that God is holy. Uh, The next Sunday, we talked about the fact that God is jealous. This is one of the first ones that God said, I want you to talk about this. And I said, that's weird. Because the Bible is filled with Bible verses that say, don't be jealous. 
Right, that's wrong. And so, well, how can God be jealous if the Bible says not to be jealous? And in Exodus 34, 14, it literally says that his name is jealous. That's one of the names of God. But how many people understand that there's a difference between petty jealousy, insecure jealousy, you know, I want what they have and I don't have it. That guy's checking out my missus. You know, insecurities galore, all that kind of stuff. There's a difference between that kind of jealousy and the kind of jealousy that God manifests, which is a fiercely protective jealousy. This is the definition for jealousy as it pertains to God. Demanding faithfulness and exclusive worship. And so once we understand that God is a jealous God, we understand that He demands faithfulness. He demands exclusive worship. He says, I'm jealous for your time. I'm jealous for your heart. I'm jealous for your energy. I'm jealous for your love. I want every single part of you. And this was something that God wanted us to hit a couple of weeks ago. And so we kicked off with like, whoa, God's holy and, and God wants every part of us. And then last Sunday, Steve talked about the fact that God is good. And one of the verses he used was, taste and see that the Lord is good, which comes out of Psalm 34. And again, it's an invitation for us to act a certain way. So every characteristic that God is showing us is followed by an invitation on how we are to respond. He's holy, so we respond by living holy. He's jealous, so we respond by giving him all of us. He's good, taste and see. So we respond by saying, all right, let's, let's experience God's goodness. God's goodness is meant to be experienced, not just intellectually understood. God is a good God. In fact, the Bible says that every good thing comes down from our Father in heavenly lights. So now you guys are up to speed, for those of you that weren't here for the last three Sundays. And so this Sunday, I was like, all right, what do you want me to speak on, God? And he said, I want you to talk about the fact that I am a rewarder. This is a fun one, a rewarder. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because if you want to come to him, you've got to believe, first of all, that he exists. That's like a no-brainer. That makes sense to me. You've got to believe that he exists. And then second of all, that he, look, rewards those who earnestly seek him. You have to believe this about God's nature, about his character, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That word rewards, uh, probably a more accurate definition would be remunerates. Because it literally means to pay someone the wages that they are due. It's like you get someone to do a job for you, and then you say, hey, I'm going to reward you. And they're like, well, it's not really a reward, is it? I mean, you owe me the money because I did the job for you. It's kind of a more accurate definition. But what's crazy, man, is that if you look through the Bible at the word reward, it's everywhere. 1 Samuel 26, 23 says the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. Psalm 19 says that the decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. And by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great, look, reward. In fact, even Jesus talked about reward in his Sermon on the Mount, which is a very famous sermon that Jesus gave where he kind of just kicked back on the hill, got a bunch of friends around and said, I'm going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to talk about this, talk about that, talk about this. And so he starts talking about giving money away. And he says, hey, when you give money away, don't be a dork about it. Don't do it in front of people to look impressive. You know, your motivations are all worked out. Because in those days, people would like give money away and they'd literally stand on the street corners with like a you know, bullhorn and be like, I'm giving money away, look, look at me, look at me, right? And Jesus said, don't do that. He said, like, you got to like, just do it on the down low. Like, don't make it about you, make it about them. If you love them, then it's not about making a big deal of it. In fact, you're probably embarrassing them by making it public that you're giving them money, you know? So Jesus makes a statement. He says, just do it 
in secret. Like, do it on the download. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will what? Reward you. Because it's kind of like you can imagine the Jewish people going, wait, you want me to give money away and no one knows about it? Like, what's, why would I do that? I don't get any credit for it. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, you should do it because it's the right thing to do. He says, no, do it, but you, don't worry, you'll get, you'll get some reward, man. And then he moves on to praying. And he says, when you pray, don't be a dork about it. Don't stand up in front of people and be like, oh, God, come, you know, and do it in front of people so that they can see you pray. And he says, just do it on the down low. Just do it quiet. Like, if you've got to go pray in your cupboard or something just to get that bad motivation out of you, then go and do that. And then he says the same thing. And your father who sees what is done in secret will, what? Reward you. So these people are going, oh, you telling me that if I go and spend time praying that God's going to reward me? Yeah, totally. And then he talks about fasting, which we all want to just avoid. <laughs> he says, when you fast, don't be a dork about it. Like, don't, because these guys were fasting and they were turning up, like, with their coats and, you know, looking haggard and be like, oh, haven't eaten for like three days, man. Fasting for the Lord. It's so hard. Whew. But, you know, that's what spiritual people got to do. Right? He says, don't do that. He said, you know, put on nice clothes. Get your hair all done. I could be fasting right now. You wouldn't know. I'm not. But you wouldn't know. <laughs> That's my point. He says, don't be, he said, just do it on the down low, man. And then he says the same thing. Your father who sees what is done in secret will what? Reward you. Like he's hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. Man, there is a reward for you. And sometimes we get super spiritual. Like, oh, I've just got to do it because, you know, it's spiritual. And, and God's like, nah, man, there's stuff in it for you. There's stuff in it for you. Uh, have you guys heard of King David? Some of you would have heard of David. Maybe you've heard of the story of David and Goliath. So King David was this guy back in the old days. He ruled Israel as king for like 40 years. And he did some dumb stuff, as we all do. But he did some awesome stuff as well. In fact, one of the things about David that is known throughout the Bible is that he's often referred to as a man after God's own heart. Right? That's like, you know, you know that saying? Oh, she's a man after my own heart. Or my wife, she's a woman after my own heart. It's like we think the same way. You know, we kind of have the similar opinions on things. Um, you know, we like the same stuff. We like the same food. We like the same movies. We're just like two peas in a pod. Ah, oh, you know, Heather, she's a woman after my own heart. You guys know that saying? Well, that is literally what God says about David. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching a message to a bunch of guys, and he says this. He says, hey, after, he's giving them a bit of a history lesson. He says, after removing Saul as king, uh, God testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. So even God said, hey, this guy thinks just like I think. This guy's like, kind of like my representative on earth. In fact, later on, he, when he uh, releases Jesus, Jesus is often referred to as the son of David. I mean, that's how highly God thought of David, that he was happy for his son to call David like his dad. And so... Bear that in mind as I read this little passage out to you. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. So keep in the front of your mind, this is the guy that God said, hey, he's a man after my own heart. So for those of you that don't know, the story here is that you've got the Israelite army and they're fighting the Philistine army. Israelites, good. Philistines, bad. And they have both kind of drawn up camp on either side of this valley. So the Israelites are on this one side, and there's a valley, and the Philistines are on this side, 
and they kind of come together, but neither army wants to be the first one to charge the other one. Because to charge the other one, you've got to run down the hill and then up the other side. And anyone who studied the art of war knows that the high position is what you want. You don't want to ever sacrifice the high position, right? So the first army to charge down, the other one's just going to be like, pew, 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 and knock them out. So they're like, we don't want to do that. And so the Philistines go, hey, here's a plan. And they used to do this back in the old days. Rather than a whole army being annihilated, they say, you pick one guy from your team, we'll pick one guy from our team, and they'll just like fight out. They'll just duke it out, one each. And then whoever wins, that army is the winner. The other army surrenders everything, and we save a whole bunch of lives. Which sounds like a good idea, except the Philistine guy that they pick is a freaking giant. He's literally called Goliath. He's like nine feet tall. He's got this huge spear. And so he comes out every day and he stands at the front and he says, who's going to fight me? Come on, I'll kill you. And the Israelites pack themselves and none of the guys are super keen. Even the king, who the Bible says was a foot taller or a head taller than anybody else, he's like, nah. And so this goes on for 40 days, like over a month. It's almost like a whole lockdown period, right? He comes out. And so David is this kid. He's not old enough to fight in the army, but he gets sent to the army one day to take some food, some bread, some cheese to his brothers who are fighting. So in verse 20 of chapter 17, which is on this page, it says this. It says, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, because that was his job. He was a shepherd, not super exciting. He loaded up, he set out, as his dad had asked him to, and he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cries. These guys going out, they're banging their shields, they're hoofing their spears. Then Goliath comes out, who's going to fight me? Fully bailing on it. So they're drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, and he ran to the battle lines, and he asked his brothers how they were. Hey, guys, how's it going? How's it going? As he's talking with them, Goliath comes out, and he shouts his usual defiance, and David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, here's the thing. The Israelites had been saying, you see this guy? You see this guy come out? Man, he comes out, he defies us every day. And then they say this, the king is going to give great wealth to the man who kills him. And he's going to give his daughter in marriage. And he's going to exempt his family from tax. Now, I kind of see the stories rolled out like this. Goliath comes out, after like a week, no one wants anything to do with him. So the king says, hey, 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 anyone that fights Goliath, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money. whole bunch of money. Another week, no one's interested. He's like, all right, um, I'll, add, I'll add my daughter. You know, a whole bunch of money, and you get to marry the princess. Another week goes by. Everyone's like, nah. He's like, all right, um, and your whole family doesn't have to pay tax. Like, he's sweetening the deal as it goes on. And so here we go. Verse 26. Look at this. David asked the men standing near him. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, here's the thing. If it were me and I were David and I'd come out and I'd seen all this stuff happen, my first question is, who's, who's this guy? That's my first question. It's not David's first question. David, a man after God's own heart. It's his second question. His first question is, What do I get if I kill this punk? Right, his first question is, what do I get if I kill this guy? And so it says here that they repeated to him what they'd been saying, and they told him this is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's brothers overhear him talking. They get grumpy at him. They say, what are you doing here? And David says, hey, what's your problem? Am I not even allowed to talk? 
And then in verse 30, it says, he turned away to someone else and he brought up the same matter. I just got, just sorry. What, what do I get if I kill this guy? Is it, I heard wealth, princess, no tax. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, David. Okay, all right. And then David, David goes to Saul. It says that what he was saying was reported to Saul. So Saul gets the report. There's some kid who's just going around the army asking everyone what he's going to get for killing the giant. And so Saul says, bring him to me. So he goes to him and he says to Saul, hey, don't worry about your giant, I'll kill him. Because he's like, I want all this stuff. I want the princess, which turned out bad, by the way. I want money. You know, I want, I want all this stuff. And this is a man after God's own heart. I think sometimes, like I said, as Christians, we just kind of, we get a little bit over-spiritual sometimes, and we're like, man, it's got to, you know, self-flagellate and sacrifice, and all that stuff is absolutely true, but I want you to know that God wants you to know this morning that there is a reward that comes when we do this. God is a rewarder. Look at this. He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That phrase, earnestly seek, it's a really interesting Greek word. Uh, and every translation that I looked at interpreted it slightly differently, right? So in the uh, NIV, it says earnestly seek him. Earnestly means to seek with intense conviction. The NLT says to sincerely seek him. And sincerely means free of deceit, free of hypocrisy. You're just genuinely, authentically going after God. The third one is the King James Version. That says to diligently seek him, which means to show care and conscientiousness. Well, you're doing it day after day after day after day. You are diligent in it. And then the Passion Translation, no surprise, says to passionately seek him, which means to seek him in a way that shows strong feelings or, here's the interesting thing, or belief. See, sometimes we seek God, we don't have those strong feelings, but a strong belief is still passionate. You can go, I'm not feeling anything right now, but I believe that I'm meant to be going after God. That's still passion. Strong belief is still passion. And so what I wanted to do this morning was just issue an invitation to you from God to say, hey, church, and anyone that's visiting this morning, I want you to passionately seek me. I want you to earnestly seek me, to sincerely seek me, to diligently seek me, and I will reward you. But here's the thing, the reward is the rewarder. In Genesis chapter 15, God says this to Abraham, who would later become Abraham. He says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. You know, the reward that we get when we go after God is God. The reward that he has for us when we seek after him is him. It's intimacy with him. It's, it's a life with him. And what I love about God, and I'll finish with this, I'll get the band up, is that God rewards us just for trying. Like the reward is for seeking him. I don't know if you've ever walked around town and seen like a, a poster on a lamppost for like a missing dog or a missing cat. It's got like a photo of the dog and it says, you know, missing Charlie. And if you're lucky, there might be a reward there. It's like $200 reward or something like that. Every now and again, I read some crazy story about someone offering $10,000 for a dog. I'm like, get out. $10,000 for a dog. Come on. You know, but some people really love dogs. My granddad, my popper, <laughs> had this little wee Scottish terrier, which lived to like 14 or 15. Uh, and so my granddad was like in his mid-60s or whatever when his Scottish terrier called Dusty died. And he couldn't handle it. 
So he just went out and bought another Scottish Terrier, exactly the same, called it Dusty, and was like, no one talk about this. <laughs> so like, the whole family was like, that's odd. My auntie came back from the UK. She'd been away for like eight years. She was like, I cannot believe how young Dusty looks. She's like, when I left, he was like arthritic and like could hardly look around there. He's like pinging around the room. Like, what have you got him on? And we're just like, yeah, okay. Some people really love dogs, you know. My papa passed away last year. I was real tempted to just find an old guy that looked just like him and pretend it never happened. (laughs) My point is, right, is that if you rocked up to someone's house and you had like, you know, a bit of paper with their missing dog on it and you said, hey, I see you're offering $1,000 for, for your dog. And they go, yeah. And you go, can I have my $1,000? And they go, did you find it? And you go, no, but I looked for it. Like, they'd be like, what are you, crazy? You don't get a reward for just looking for something. But that's not how God's like, you totally do. God's like, yes, you do. You get a re- I will reward you just for looking. I will reward you just for seeking me. And so I want to challenge you this morning as we close with these three things, or these four things actually, earnestly, sincerely, diligently, passionately, you know, what does this look like in your life? Does it look like setting your alarm a little bit earlier so that you can get up and spend time with God every day? I'm so challenged by this. It's a massive work on area in my life um, to get up early and give God the first part of my day. And it's scary to me how easy it is to go a whole day without spending time with God. Is that just me? Or do you guys also find that that's not difficult to do from time to time? And yet the whole reason we were created was to connect with Him. Isn't it scary that you can go a whole day without ever connecting with the reason that you were created, the reason that you were brought into this planet, the the purposes that God has for you are all linked inside of Him. Every answer to every question that you have ever asked is inside of him. Even if sometimes the answer is not right now or you don't need an answer, which is a lame answer when he gives you that, but sometimes he does. Read your Bibles. Get to church. Prioritize things that you need to prioritize. I saw a, I went to the gym this morning. Just want to brag about that for a little bit. And there's a poster on my gym, which I hate. It's on the window outside. I walk past it before I go in. And every time I walk past, it says, instead of saying I don't have time, say it's not a priority and see how that feels. I'm going to tear that poster down. Instead of saying I don't have time, say it's not a priority and see how that feels. I heard someone say once that there's always enough time in your day to do everything that God wants you to do. It's true, right? God knows how much time you have in a day. He's not going to be like, oh, flip. I gave Rachel 27 hours of work to do. There's only 24, I forgot. There's always enough time in the day to do everything that God wants you to do. So if you get to the end of the day and you're like, man, I didn't get a chance to read my Bible, right? well, it's not a time issue. It's a priority issue. We need to put God first. We need to be seeking Him earnestly, diligently, sincerely, passionately. And God says, if you do that, I will reward you and my reward for you will be me. You will find me. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. That is his invitation for you this morning. Church, he has some amazing treasure for you. 
but it will be found in him. Why don't we stand to our feet this morning? Pastors say that all the time. Stand to your feet. What else am I going to stand to? Why don't you all stand on your hands this morning? Everyone just jump on your head. No. Stand to your feet. We're just going to sing for another few minutes. And what I want to ask you to do in this space is to just connect with God in this space and just say, okay, God, give me one thing, one thing that you would like me to do this week that looks like this. One thing that looks like earnestly, passionately, sincerely, diligently seeking you. Is it getting up early? Is it reading my Bible? Is it getting along to prayer meeting on a Monday night? Is it whatever between you and God? As we sing this next bit, just close your eyes and ask him, what's the one thing that you want me to do this week?